the mystery and the music of Saturn's rotation, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. The Cassini spacecraft continues to solve old riddles about the ring planet, even as it uncovers new and even greater mysteries. For example, we now know that the accepted rate at which Saturn turns, which has been in textbooks almost since the Voyager missions, is wrong. And that's not the half of it, as you'll hear from Don Gurnett, Cassini's radio and plasma wave science team lead. You'll also hear the eerie sounds of Saturn as it turns. Later in today's show, the eerie sounds will be coming from Bruce Betts as he introduces another random space fact, along with a new space trivia contest. Bill Nye is away this week, but I know you'll be glad to hear the return of the Planetary Society's Science and Technology Coordinator, Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, it seems like it's been ages. Welcome back. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to be back. I'm glad because uh, we missed you, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing some of these highlights, recent highlights from the blog. I'm going to mention very quickly right up front something that is just worthwhile for the beauty of it, and that is amazingly Phobos passing through the frame with Jupiter in the background. It's really quite beautiful, and people should take a look at that. From uh, It's a June 17 entry that uh, you got into the blog. Let's move on to talking about Messenger, which is starting to release uh, some really interesting data about Mercury telling us that it's a unique place. That's right. You know, Messenger has now been in orbit for one year, one Mercury year, that is, which is, of course, only 88 Earth days long, pretty short year. And they're beginning to get a sense of the shape of the planet and the elemental abundances and all the kinds of other stuff that they sent Messenger there to get. I'll talk about one particular result that they discussed at a press conference this week, and that had to do with the ratio between the abundances of two elements on Mercury's surface. They were measuring the abundances of potassium, atomic symbol K, and thorium, atomic symbol TH. Um, And the reason that they're interested in looking at those elements and measuring their relative abundance is because potassium is what they call a volatile element. If you heat up a rocky place really, really, really hot, potassium is one of the first elements that floats away on the solar wind and never comes back again. Whereas thorium is what they call a refractory element. It only boils away at extremely high temperatures. So no matter what, the thorium is going to stick behind in your rocky body. And the reason that this is relevant to Mercury is because there is a lot of different ideas about how Mercury could have formed. In some of these theories, Mercury had a very hot period in its history, and in some of these, that Mercury had what never got so hot. The abundance of potassium to thorium is really a critical measurement to differentiate among these theories and decide which ones are more likely to be correct. They predicted that Mercury is going to have a low potassium to thorium ratio like the moon, indicating that it had a very hot period in its history. It turns out that so far as they can tell, not only is its potassium to thorium ratio not low and moon-like, it's even higher than Mars, which had the coolest formation temperature of any of the terrestrial planets. So that's very odd. And they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on their ideas of how Mercury formed. And they're not going to be able to take pieces from the formation histories of Earth and Moon. They're going to have to make up their own new ideas about how Mercury formed. No shortage of surprises left for us in the solar system. Sean Solomon must be a very excited head of the Messenger mission. We'll get him back on this show soon. Very quickly, just one more thing to mention, and that is Dawn getting closer and closer. 
Yeah, you know, they, they released another image just a few days ago and, and Vesta's still pretty fuzzy, but it's it's getting lumpier and bigger and, and craters are beginning to come into view and I just I just can't wait to see it come more sharply into focus. The funny thing is that at this stage it's it's still fuzzy enough that no matter where you look, people see faces on it. I've I've heard of <laughs> monkey faces, surprised faces, fairy faces, all kinds of different faces. So I don't know what the distance we'll have to get to uh, within Vesta in order to stop seeing faces on Vesta, but right now we're still in the, the faces on Vesta stage. Yes. The Faces on Vesta. I'm sure there'll be a book out about that very soon. Emily, great to have you back. Thanks once again. Thank you, Matt. Emily Lakdawal is the Science and Technology Coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. I will be right back with our very special guest this week, Don Grenett. How could a planet's top half be rotating at a different rate than its bottom half? It can't, even though that was a possible conclusion from recent data collected by the Cassini spacecraft as it orbits Saturn. It gets even weirder, as you'll hear from Don Grenett, who has been making discoveries about our solar system since the dawn of the space age. Don has been professor of physics at the University of Iowa for more than 45 years. He has contributed to planetary science missions around our solar system, almost back to Explorer 1, the first American satellite. Most of his discoveries have been related to the radio and plasma waves that emanate from our sun and many planets. His fascination with radio receivers goes back to his boyhood in Iowa, when he became an early builder of radio-controlled airplanes. They still had tubes back then. Don has been equally enthralled by the sounds made by heavenly bodies once you process and compress the signals properly. Those sounds have even inspired musical compositions. As you'll hear if you listen to my complete conversation with Don at planetary.org. We talked late last week. Don, it is really an honor to welcome you to uh, Planetary Radio. Thanks for being part of the show. Yes, pleased to be uh, with you. We've got to talk a little bit about your amazing history, which traces just about the entire history of the American effort to explore space. Before we get to talking about your current work on Saturn, although that's certainly not the only thing you have going on, I thought that you got there uh, even before Explorer 1, but no, apparently it was just after that that you started to work with one of the most famous actors in the American space program. Uh, Yes, I... uh was here at the University of Iowa studying engineering as a freshman, actually, in 1957. And, of course, 1957, Sputnik 1 was launched. And just a few months after that, Professor James Van Allen, in our physics department, built the Geiger tube that was launched on the first U.S. spacecraft, Explorer 1. And uh, that was right across the street from the engineering building, and that caught my attention, as it also caught the nation's attention. I'll say. And I went over and asked him if I could uh, possibly start working for him in engineering uh, uh, work, and uh, they hired me. Uh, So this is my 53rd year, I believe, working on space research. And Van Allen, of course, uh, responsible for what we still know as the Van Allen belts discovered by that very first American satellite. Yes, and also Van Allen had an instrument on uh, Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft, which uh, flew to uh, first Jupiter and discovered the radiation belt at Jupiter, and uh, Pioneer 11 went to Saturn and discovered the radiation belt at Saturn. Let's go to another bit of data Voyager returned, 
which uh, told us how fast Jupiter was spinning. And that has everything to do with a story that uh, we're going to talk about in greater detail today out at Saturn. The outer planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, have the unusual feature they're covered with clouds and they have no surface. So there's an issue of what their rotation rate is because you can't really see any, well, you can see cloud motions, but the clouds move at different rates at different latitudes. Uh, so historically, the way in which, uh, if you look at an astronomy book and look up the rotation rates of these planets, it's all based on radio observations. They produce radio emissions, charged particles uh, that are controlled by the magnetic field of the planet uh, generates the radio emission. And the magnetic field is linked to the deep interior. So as the planet rotates, typically the magnetic axis uh, is tilted a little bit relative to the rotation axis, kind of like at the Earth. And as it rotates, you get a modulation in the radio uh, intensity. And by uh, measuring that period, you average over you know several years, uh, you can get a very accurate number. Now, with uh, Voyagers 1 and 2, when we flew by uh, Saturn, we started to detect the radio emission from Saturn, I think about six months before closest approach. And we came up with a, a rotation period of 10 hours, 39 minutes, 24 plus or minus 7 seconds. Uh, seemingly a very accurate uh, number. Yeah, certainly uh, sounds like it. Uh, right. Uh, that's in all the textbooks. Uh, astronomy <laughs> textbooks, for example. And it was that uh, period was adopted as the official International Astro Astronomical Union uh, rotation period of Saturn. But then uh, a few years later, quite a few years later actually, uh, there was another spacecraft that had a radio instrument built by our French colleagues. And they discovered that the radio period of uh, Saturn varied by a small amount about 1%. Now, 1% may not seem like much, but, you know, a big planet like that, its period just can't change by anything like that. It's, it's as though here at Earth, you know, one day the rotation period were 24 hours, and the next, uh, you know, a few years later it was 23 hours and uh, 50 minutes. Another puzzling aspect was that from the Voyager measurements, we knew that the magnetic axis was lined up almost parallel to its rotational axis. So that was another big puzzle, and still is, actually. And we, so what you're saying there is that rather than Earth, as you said, where the magnetic North Pole is offset from the actual North Pole. That's correct, and therefore there's no reason given that it's exactly aligned, there, there's no reason there should be a modulation in the uh, radio period. Do you, do you sort of follow that uh, line of thinking? Yeah, sure. Uh, because it takes a tilt to, to, to cause the radio beaming to, to uh, oscillate as the planet rotates. Uh, well, the next kind of uh, step in the story is uh, the Cassini spacecraft, which was uh, uh, launched in... Uh, so, you know, if I can remember the date, 1997, it arrived at Saturn on July 1st, 2004. And we have a radio instrument on Cassini, a very sensitive instrument that covers a wide range of frequencies. We started picking up the radio signal from Saturn about two years before uh, we arrived at Saturn. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, we uh, carefully measured the period. In fact, I think you have a recording that I sent you that where you can actually hear the modulation as the planet rotates. I don't know if you're going to play that or not. You bet. In fact, uh, tell us a little bit more about that recording, and then we're going to play it for the audience. Uh, what we did uh, there in the recording you're going to listen to, the radio emission is actually up at about 100 to uh, 300 kilohertz, which you can't hear, but we've shifted uh, signal down to the audio range, kind of like you do in your car radio in some respects. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we uh, took five days and we compressed it into about 15 seconds. Uh, and then if you listen to that recording, you can hear this kind of... Every rotation. Simple matter to get the period then, you just... You just count the rotations over uh, large, maybe 100 rotations, and you can get a very accurate number. We came up with a number of 10 hours and 45 minutes, 45, 45 minutes, 45 seconds. So we, we confirmed that uh, the radio emission indeed is varying by a small amount. Stay with us for more of the sounds of Saturn when we return with Cassini scientist Don Gurnett. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. It takes a lot to create exciting projects like the first solar sail, informative publications like an award-winning magazine, and many other outreach efforts like this radio show. Help make space exploration and inspiration happen. Here's how you can join us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Space science pioneer Don Gurnett has been telling us about the mysteries of Saturn's rotation. Again, you can hear more of my fascinating conversation with Don at planetary.org. Just click the show link. Even before it went into orbit around the ring planet, the Cassini spacecraft was able to learn that the long-accepted rotation rate was not just wrong, it seemed to vary. And then, of course, we put Cassini in orbit around Saturn, which allows us to make uh, long-term observations, you know, over several years. It took a while, but after about four years, we had enough data that we could uh, really analyze these variations in the rotation period. And we discovered a new, another amazing thing, which is that there were actually two periods, approximately 10.6 hours, and 10.8 hours. Which, Even, which, which sounds impossible. I mean, yeah. was it tempting to think, okay, we got a planet with a, one hemisphere rotating yeah. faster than the other? Oh, that's the, that's, the, uh, that's the big puzzle here. The basic picture is that the radio emissions are produced in what we call the auroral zone, up at high latitudes, uh, approximately 15 degrees or so from the pole. Mm-hmm. In fact, these radio emissions are associated with the aurora. There's electrons that come down the magnetic field line, 
Uh, they produce radio emission. They also produce the aurora. And you can see these emissions. You can see the auroras wax and wane along with the emissions, right? Yes. The the imaging, the camera on Cassini, can, and also uh, Hubble can uh, take pictures of the aurora. It's very clear. Uh, so that was a big puzzle. Uh, then about a year later, uh, actually last year, 2010, I discovered that these two rotation periods reversed uh, shortly after uh, the equinox, which occurred on, uh, in August of 2010. Uh, we went through equinox where the rings are uh, edge-on as viewed from Earth. But what happened is that the radio periods reversed. By reversed, I mean they sort of interchanged between the north and the south rather slowly, but that was the crossing point. And the crossing point uh, didn't occur exactly at equinox, but it was about uh, seven uh, months after equinox. We uh, went back and analyzed the Ulysses data, and we discovered a similar reversal at the previous equinox. So what we've discovered is that there's a, I'll call it a seasonal effect. I mean, that's that's the significance of the uh, equinox. Uh, you essentially go from uh, in the southern hemisphere to approaching summer in the northern hemisphere. This, I think, is a very important clue. And it's led us to think that what's happening is this... Uh, magnetic field, there's been a big debate uh, actually going on about whether this uh, rotation period has something to do with the internal magnetic field, i.e. something to do with some kind of rotating feature internal to the planet, or whether the magnetosphere, that's the region around the planet that is where the magnetic field controls the, the uh, electrons that produce the radio emission. Which is huge. It's huge, that's correct. So we came up with this idea that the magnetosphere in the north and the south are somehow slipping in their rotation relative to the interior. That's our, that's our current concept. And that the slippage rate is uh, different in the two hemispheres, uh, the north and the south. And that's a big puzzle these days that people are trying to understand how that uh, happens. I've advanced a specific idea, which we're now in the process of testing, and that is the rotation of the magnetosphere is driven by high-altitude winds, azimuthal winds, you know, the east-west winds. Because of the delay time after equinox, I made the point that that seems to point to an atmospheric effect. You know, uh, it actually gets warmer later in the summer, a delay about a month or so. So when you, hear a, when you see a delay effect like that, it points to an atmospheric phenomena. So the thing we're pursuing is whether it's got to do with high-altitude winds, uh, which are different in the northern uh, southern hemisphere, which are, in fact, driving the rotation of the aurora and, uh, and the magnetosphere. That's, that's our current concept. You know, one of the points that uh, has come up in our conversations with Linda Spilker over and over is the enormous value of the fact that this spacecraft, Cassini, is out there at Cassini and is returning data over so many years, and I'm sure you would agree. Yes, that is a crucial aspect because, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it takes 29 and a half years for Saturn to go around the sun, so to investigate seasonal effects takes many years of observations. At Earth, of course, you, can, you know, one year would do it. But uh, some of these subtle effects, uh, maybe not so subtle, this is actually a major effect having to do with the 
uh, rotation period of Saturn, and we we still don't accurately know the internal rotation rate. That that's so uh, the number that's quoted in astronomy textbooks uh, is is certainly not correct. And in fact, we don't know how to do exactly how to come up with the precise number. That's unique, as far as we know, to, to Saturn. Uh, Jupiter, which has a substantial tilt of about 10 degrees, has been just rock solid in the radio rotation rate for well over 50 years. I mean, down to a fraction, you know, a second or so. Uranus and Neptune also have a substantial tilt to their magnetic axis, and uh, they also have radio emissions. Uh, we don't know quite so much about them. Only the only thing we really know is what we got from Voyager's uh, Voyager Two, and we went by Uranus and Neptune. So we're talking about really two different signals, two magnetic beats: one from the northern hemisphere, one from the southern. And there is a recording that you've made where you've compressed the time, and there is a graphic representation as well. And we will uh, suggest to our listeners that they go to planetary.org where we will put up a link to that uh, graphic representation. But uh, we can play this for them now in this compressed form. And I think that people will find that uh, it's rather musical, which is something that has, I think, fascinated you for many, many years. Uh, That's true. Actually, when you listen to that, we uh, depicted the rotation rate, the two rotation rates, as a tone, which is actually proportional to the rotation rate, but we've had to shift it down into the audio range so you can hear it. Uh, So there is definitely some modifications we've made to the raw data to to be able to produce an audio thing that you can listen to. But it is it is kind of musical. You can hear these two tones that gradually change in frequency. Then you can hear it uh, hear them come together and reverse uh, shortly after uh, the August uh, 2010 equinox. Let's play that for people right now. So there is the recording, enhanced somewhat, as you heard from Don. And if you you may have noticed, if not, definitely go to the website where you can hear it again, because I didn't really notice the first time. You can hear at just before the crossover point, those few months after the Saturnian equinox, you can hear the, the higher frequency drop down, the lower one come up, they cross, and then you hear one going up and one going going down. It is really fascinating. Yeah, I think it was... Uh an amazing result when I when we first uncovered this. So. Don, it, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you. Don Grenett is Cassini's Radio and Plasma Wave Science Instrument Team Lead and a longtime professor of physics at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, out there near the middle of the United States of America. We'll be right back for another Look at the Night Sky with our friend Bruce Betts. Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he also is here every week to tell us what's up in the night sky and talk about trivia, space trivia, and do other fun things. And we're going to do some of that right now. Welcome back. Good to be back. It's a special week. No trivia answer this week, but I imagine that you have a question that you will lay on us in a few moments. I do. Fear not. There is a question. 
<laughs> observe a moment of silence for no trivia answer. <laughs> what's up? All right, maybe we won't. Uh, what's up is Saturn in the evening sky over in the southwest, looking yellowish and kind of interesting right now. It's got a little friend, Porima. Uh, which is a star, which is a little bit dimmer, makes it look like kind of a fake double star thing. And just to make it more exciting, Porima with a telescope is actually a double star itself. There's just such doubling. It's very exciting. Uh, we've got in the pre-dawn, check out uh, Venus, hard to miss over in the... No, no, don't check out Venus. I keep wanting you to. You might be able to see Venus. It's very low in the east. Check out Jupiter, super easy to see, very bright, high in the east. And to the lower left of Jupiter, you will have more trouble seeing Mars looking kind of dimmish and red, but it'll keep getting brighter over the coming months. And I got something else exciting, Matt. What's that? Supernova. Ooh, not a new one. Actually, it is a new one. Relatively new. It's been brightening recently. It actually occurred on May 31st. Well, it occurred a really long time ago. <laughs> but we've, we it was observed on May 31st, been brightening ever since. Uh, not a naked eye object, but always cool when you get one of these. It's all the way over in the Whirlpool galaxy. One star doing its collapse, explosion, excitement brightened up so you can actually see it where you could never see it before. It's uh, magnitude 12.6 right now for those playing the magnitude game, which means uh, you can see it in a amateur telescope. You probably need like an 8-inch telescope to get to it. Still an interesting kind of thing going on. M51, that's the Whirlpool Galaxy. Well, you mentioned telescopes, and I thought of it when you said Saturn, because I was lucky enough to be back up at the Griffith Observatory here in L.A. just uh, just yesterday, just last night. What a great place. All sorts of people coming out to look out over the city of Los Angeles and look up at the stars. Long line at the refractor telescope there that was pointed at Saturn. And we Oddly didn't, enough. Yeah, we didn't wait in line because... Uh, it was going to be like an hour, but just warms my heart to see people waiting to look at what's up. Yeah. Do check out Saturn in a telescope if you get a chance. That, pretty much any small telescope, uh, even a good set of binoculars held still, you can see the rings. Mm. What else you got for us? Uh, we got This Week in Space History. It was This Week in 2004 when Spaceship One launched and became the first privately funded human spaceflight on its uh, suborbital jaunt. I was there. Yeah, getting close to Spaceship Two now. Yeah, getting there. We move on to Random Space Fact. Supernova, let's talk about them. They're cool. They're extremely luminous and bright. Often cause these bursts of radiation that often briefly outshine an entire galaxy before they fade after uh, several weeks or months. Over those several weeks or months, a supernova can radiate as much energy as the sun is expected to emit over its entire lifespan. Mm. Let me just say that this is why I don't mind hearing that there's one in a neighboring galaxy. I never want you to tell us, hey, Matt, I've got big news. Alpha Centauri's gone supernova, because that might be the last of our What's Up segments. <laughs> hey, Matt, i got a great tan today. <laughs> yeah, really enjoy oh, that. Oh, oh really? <laughs> All right, we move on to the trivia contest, and I, I can't get enough uh, of this. So, uh, Whirlpool Galaxy, how far away is it? That's your question for this time around. Approximately, since we only know it approximately, how far away is the Whirlpool Galaxy, or M51? Go to planetary.org slash radio, find out how to enter. And you already know my answer, not far enough. 
<laughs> I'm, I would not lose sleep over this one. Okay. <laughs> it, it's pretty darn. I'll give the, the qualitative answer. It is pretty darn far. <laughs> Always with the technical terms. You have until the 27th of June, June 27th, Monday. 2 p.m. Pacific time to get Just us trying answer. to make it so you'll understand, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Bring it down to my level. <laughs> all right, I think we're done. Uh, all right, everybody, go out there, look out the night sky, and think about A, B, C. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Batts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. Every week, he brings us the A to Z of what's up in the night sky. The Juno mission lifts off for Jupiter in August. We'll talk with Principal Investigator Scott Bolton next week. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible in part by a grant from the William T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation. Clear skies.